Welcome back to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and today I'm joined by Victoria Ahrens, Jenny Kaplan, and Jody Eichler-Levine for a roundtable discussion about Art Spiegelman's graphic novel Mouse and the recent controversy from January 2022 when a school board in Tennessee banned the teaching of Mouse. So we're going to talk about Mouse and this broader controversy and why it matters when we think about Holocaust memory and how we teach and talk about the Holocaust in contemporary America. This is a timely topic that ties together the history of Holocaust memory, Holocaust literature, including children's Holocaust literature, with education and broad social and cultural issues of the present. Listen in as we dive into why Mouse is such an important and even landmark work in Holocaust literature, what happened with this attempt to ban Mouse, and what it tells us about ongoing debates about what's being taught or not taught in schools and universities. Our three guests today bring together a wide range of research and thinking on the Holocaust, Holocaust literature and education, and also the intersection of Holocaust memory and popular culture. So altogether, I hope that this will bring forward a really important and interesting way of looking at these ongoing issues, and I hope that you'll enjoy our conversation. So with that said, I should introduce them as a way of starting off our conversation. The first of our three guests today is Victoria Ahrens, who is the O.R. and Eva Mitchell Distinguished Professor of Literature in the English Department at Trinity University in San Antonio, where she teaches courses on American Jewish and Holocaust literatures. She is the author and editor of numerous books, most recently Holocaust Graphic Narratives, Generation, Trauma, and Memory, which was published in 2020 by Rutgers University Press. Welcome, Vicki, to the podcast. Hi, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for including me. Next up, we are also joined by Jenny Kaplan, who is an assistant professor of religious studies at Towson University, where she's also the program director for Jewish studies. She teaches courses in Jewish comics and graphic novels and has several recent and forthcoming publications on Jewish identity, gender, meaning-making, and comics. Her forthcoming book on American Jewish humor will be published with Wayne State University Press. Hi, Jenny. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Jason. Thanks for inviting me. And finally, we're also speaking with Jody Eichler-Levine, who is the Berman Professor of Jewish Civilization and Professor of Religious Studies at Lehigh University. She is the author, most recently, of Painted Pomegranates and Needlepoint Rabbis, How Jews Craft Resilience and Create Community, which was published in 2020 with the University of North Carolina Press. And she is currently writing a book about the intersection between religion and the Walt Disney Company. Thanks so much, Jody, for joining our conversation today. Hi, thanks so much for having me here. Thanks to all of you for, for joining me for this roundtable discussion. Mouse, which I think you guys would agree with me, is one of the most significant pieces of contemporary Holocaust literature and is also a milestone work in the history of graphic novels. 
themselves. So Mouse is such an important book, and we can talk about what Mouse is, but it also has come to prominence in recent weeks. At the moment when we're recording this podcast, this happened in January of 2022, when a school board in Tennessee banned the teaching of Mouse, and it blew up also around the time of the International Holocaust uh, Remembrance Day, which was on January 27th. It really, you know, hit the news and, and everybody was talking about it on social media. And so thank you guys so much for, for joining us uh, for this roundtable discussion about it. And so I think that the first thing that perhaps that we might discuss is what is Mouse and why is it such a significant piece of Holocaust literature, uh, a significant teaching tool for teaching people uh, and learning about the Holocaust? And why is it important in a broad sense? Mouse is such a complex work that it's really hard to say one specific thing that it's about. I mean, on the one hand, Mouse is written by a second-generation writer, that is, a child of survivors. And it is largely an account of Art Spiegelman's parents' experience in the Holocaust, and very specifically, his father's experience in Auschwitz the extermination center and concentration camp. But it's also a story of what it means to be a child of survivors and what it means to be a child of survivors growing up in the United States. It's also the story of his mother's subsequent suicide. So it's a very complicated and complex narrative. And it's a really important work because the first volume was published in 86 the second volume in 91, but this is the first graphic novel to receive a Pulitzer Prize in 1992. So the work itself has done a number of things, not only for Holocaust literary representation, but also for as the graphic novel as a legitimate genre of literature. And it was not only the first graphic novel to win the Pulitzer, it will remain the only because they changed the rules after Mouse because it created such debate over what constitutes literature and what is a narrative, what is a book. And I think that's another part of why Mouse is such a valuable teaching tool, um, especially for students in the kind of middle grades, because it really helps broaden their understanding of what a text is and, and what a book is. And it brings a whole new kind of storytelling into their orbit. Because we are now teaching generations of children that are, in my experience, very visual learners, both at the younger level and at the college level, there's something about mouse with the combination of words and images that still stop. Unlike a movie, they're able to really parse and analyze the visuals in a different way. Mouse is important in part because it is so widely taught. A lot of us stopped teaching mouse in our college graphic novels classes because we found that so many students had read it at an earlier level, which is why this controversy is so fascinating and important. You know, I want to go back, I think, to Vicky's initial comments on this about the way in which mouse is such a multi-layered narrative of the Holocaust. It's not just that it's a graphic novel representation of the Holocaust, and one might say it's a graphic representation of the Holocaust, 
both because it's a graphic novel and also because in many respects it, it is graphic as all visual depictions of the Holocaust would necessarily be. And I think that as we'll get to, that's one of the central kind of issues in terms of the debate that took place in McKinn County, Tennessee. But as Vicky was pointing out initially, there are many components to this story in Mouse. On the one hand, it's a graphic novel that tells the story of the Holocaust itself. You know, in addition, it is a graphic novel that tells a very personal account of Art Spiegelman, the author, and his encounter with the Holocaust through the intermediation of his parents, who were Holocaust survivors. And there are many kind of aspects to this. I think it's also what makes the book very interesting and important to teach to students. As Jenny pointed out, it helps to expand their understanding of a novel, uh, of what is a book, but also of how there are metatextual elements within books. But beyond the fact that Mouse was the first and as it will remain, the only graphic novel to win the Pulitzer. You know, what is it about Mouse that makes it so significant? I think that Spiegelman reconceived the ways in which we envision and narrate the broader strokes of history as they're informed by personal histories. Because you have an intersection in the book. You've got the history of the Holocaust the enormity of the Holocaust, an event that affected millions of people. But within that construct, you have one family's experience. And so this intersection, I, th I think what he did is brilliantly, really, is to stretch the limits and the range of possibilities and the definition of the genre, opening the medium itself to this layered and complex expression of both individual and historical trauma as they intersect. And that's part of what makes it so teachable. Marianna Hirsch in her book, Family Frames, comes up with this idea of post-memory through reading mouse, the idea that major events that happened before one was born are passed down and that we remember things through our families. We could call that intergenerational memory but that idea of being haunted by post-memory that, as Victoria is saying, is so much about the intimacy and family story is one of the reasons Mouse teaches so well, because lots of people relate to trauma and to family memories. And so I've found often teaching this in an area like Tennessee, where there are not a lot of Jews, there is a real resonance there. The immediacy of the story is such an important part of its impact in a six million is just it, it's an unfathomable number we can, not even children adults none of us we can't visualize what six million people looks like but we can zero in on the experiences of this one family additionally to jody's point about the intergenerational trauma throughout both volumes of mouse we're interacting with art as an adult and his adult father but we're also being walked through Art's lifelong feelings about a lot of these things, including his dead brother, who he never met. And so there's a lot of the book that's about validating the big feelings that young people have about family and about siblings that they may have not known. And it's when you start to realize your parents had a life before you were born and that things happened in that life and how you process all of that and how you process coming to realize that your parents are fully formed humans 
that exists separate from you. That's something that's so important for kids to be able to see and to realize that the big feelings that they might be having are are completely normal and validated. Which is why it's so important, too, that it begins with the writer. It begins with Art Spiegelman as a young child. And that's where volume one starts. His own experience as a child who's roller skating with his friends, who then, when he trips and falls, they skate on beyond him and leave him on the ground. And he goes to his father crying. And his father says, friends, what friends really mean, then it opens itself up to his own experience. This business of the intimacy and the intersection of history and personal histories reminds me of a quote from Philip Roth, who famously said, you enter history through my history and me. And I think for a generation of students, of of kids, and I continue to teach the the book in my class. I teach literature of the Holocaust, and I always include it. I teach a class on the Jewish graphic novel, and I always include it. Because even if students have read it before, they come to it in a different way, in a different context. But I think what Spiegelman has done in so many ways is to create a new way of seeing and bearing witness to the Holocaust through that kind of personalizing of it. The personal nature of it is not at the expense of the larger picture. I think he navigates both really well. What happened in terms of just like the events of January and the attempt to ban Mouse? Why is it important for us to talk about this issue? You know, this is a very local issue in a way, right? It's in a, it's in a single school district. Why is it that there was such an uproar about this decision when it happened? And what is it that we can learn from looking at it? I know, Jenny, you wrote an article about this recently, which I'll link in the show notes also. But do you maybe want to get us started here with what happened and why you think it's an important issue? Yeah, it was a complicated issue. It is a complicated issue. The challenge was brought to the McMinn County School Board about the inclusion of Bouse in the eighth grade curriculum. And so on January 10th, the school board had their meeting. Really, the whole meeting became this discussion. And there were some teachers present and some parents present and people arguing on both sides of the issue. And the two reasons why it was being challenged were for language that was thought to be inappropriate for eighth graders, obscene words, curse words, and for nudity. And the nudity portion of it is what got misconstrued and and misunderstood in the social media furor that blew up because most of Mouse is told through allegory where different types of animals, different species of animals stand in for the different groups of people. And so specifically Jews were mice and Germans were cats and Americans are dogs and, and the French are frogs. And so there was a lot of mockery that happened as the decision became known because people were saying, oh, nudity, they're, they're mice. Of, of course, they're nude. But that actually wasn't the issue. In the middle of the graphic novel, Spiegelman reprints a comic that he had written years earlier called Prisoner on the Hell Planet which was one of his first graphic attempts to wrestle with his mother's suicide. And in that interstitial comic that he inserts into Mouse, there 
are images of his mother's nude body in the bathtub the way he found her after her suicide. So there are whole separate questions that come up when you read the transcript of the school board meeting about the way that they are seemingly unable to separate a sexual image of a nude body from an image of a nude body that in no way, shape, or form is sexual or sexualized or should be. So that's a separate conversation about the way they can't seem to separate nudity from sexualization. But it was the specific images of the nude body of his mother that were really at issue there. So I think what you're pointing out here are the the kind of the key points that were brought up at the meeting in terms of what might be perceived as being inappropriate in, in a book like Mouse, and that as this issue gained more attention, that this thing had happened, that a school board had banned the teaching of Mouse. You know, they took detailed notes of the meeting, but not everybody read them. A couple ways to parse this and to think about this is why is it so significant that a, a school board is, is banning a, a book like Mouse in the first place? And then what is going on in, in the cultural context of these events? I think there's several reasons this story really blew up and struck a chord. One, of course, is the fact that even though book banning is in no way new, over late 2021 and early 2022, we've seen a lot of culture wars over the sort of bogeyman of critical race theory um, and a lot of different attempts to ban various books, while at the same time, ever since the Pittsburgh Tree of Life shooting, Jews in America have been experiencing a more tenuous sense of safety. In particular, just before this story broke, not long before that, there was a hostage situation in Texas at a synagogue. So I think the irony of a school board being concerned about nudity was really upsetting to Jewish Americans in particular, who saw the real obscenity as being violence against Jews. Maybe two weeks after the story blew up, about a month after the decision, there is an ongoing issue in Birmingham, Alabama, because a high school teacher, I believe, in his history class taught the class how to do the Nazi salute as part of a lesson on how symbols change and showed them visuals of like American soldiers doing that salute before it became associated with the Nazis. And and so it was supposed to be part of the subject lesson, but the absolute lack of awareness that went into that teacher thinking that was a good way to teach that lesson. It just, it came on the heels of this decision. It came on the heels of the hostage situation. It's just this, this snowball of events that are, are making people, including American Jews, really question the way that we're teaching these issues in schools. And if students are losing the understanding of why these things are are a problem. I think that this raises larger concerns in our culture right now about anti-Semitism, but also about Holocaust denial. Here you're identifying a Jewish writer, a Jewish graphic narrative, as a corrupting influence on young people. And I think that makes it all the more disturbing. Ironically, of course, as we all know, you really want kids to read something? Ban it. 
But Art Spiegelman said recently in an interview, I think with NPR, he said he was baffled by the decision. He said, this is disturbing imagery. But you know what? It's disturbing history. Honestly, again, you think about the specific kinds of things that the school board took issue with. It's the image itself, Jenny, you mentioned, of Art Spiegelman's mother having committed suicide, being naked in the bathtub. That's disturbing in and of itself. Perhaps it's to have kids confronting the idea that their parents, A, that they're going to die, and that B, that they might commit suicide. In some respects, that's a tremendously traumatic image, not necessarily in terms of whether or not somebody's naked or not, but just in terms of in general, alongside the whole history of the Holocaust, where there's this whole question about how do we teach people about the Holocaust at different ages and what is the appropriate way to to introduce young people to this horrible event of history to which they are blissfully ignorant and unaware of until we tell them about it. Part of, Vicky, what you were just saying here is that, that there's so much that is disturbing about Mouse but it's not because of the way that Art Spiegelman told the story. It's just because of the subject matter, whether it has to do with the genocide itself or specific things like you know, his mother's suicide. Perhaps we spend a bit too much time worrying and, and pearl clutching and hand wringing over what kind of violent images children are seeing because they live in the world. But I can see a case being made for eighth grade not being the appropriate place to show a hyper-graphic war film, Saving Private Ryan, that these are experiences of adults and 18-year-olds aren't really adult, but but whatever. But with some of the things like the Holocaust, and there there was the story that went around when the Holocaust ban happened about the school system that had tried to ban Elie Wiesel's Night, saying that, is this appropriate for a 12-year-old to read? And, and the teacher responded, a 12-year-old lived it. And that's the thing about the Holocaust is that this happened to children. This happened to children their age. It happened to children younger than them. This is not something that we should necessarily be shielding children from really understanding on a visceral level under the guise of it's grown-up stuff because it isn't and, and it wasn't. And I think that's another important part of it is that this isn't one of those situations where we can say this is inappropriate for their age because it was something that that was done to children. I want to pick up on something, Jenny, that that you mentioned just now, which is that in a way like children are already exposed to violence in a really tremendous and probably traumatic way through the media in general, films that are available, video games, all sorts of things. To go back to this question of what it was specifically the school board had a problem with is that they had a problem with curse words and they had a problem with sexuality. And and again, we can debate whether or not that image should be considered a sexual image, you know, which it probably should not, right? That specific frame in, in the graphic novel, but they had an issue with sexuality. When we talk about the kinds of books that are about the Holocaust that children tend to read, you know, one of the, one of the the ones that that comes to mind in the first place is The Diary of Anne Frank. And what is interesting about The Diary of Anne Frank is that the version that most people read is the edited version. And I see all of you guys nodding your heads like we're all familiar with this story, but it might be useful to sketch it out a little bit, which is that Anne Frank's father, who published the diaries, edited them. And a large part of what was taken out were things that related to Anne's discussion of her developing sexuality and her menstruation, things like that. And so those are the things that were taken out of the diary of Anne Frank in the version that she's usually available. And so I think there's a parallel here, which is that you have... The violence essentially is okay to expose 
you know, children too, but sexuality is not, right? And this, I think, reflects a broader cultural pattern in the United States, you know, in particular as a whole, but where you see the same thing happening here. The issue with Mouse was not the images of the gas chambers, you know, at least for the school board. The issue with Mouse was this supposedly sexual or sexualized image. Yeah, one of my favorite Anne Frank quote-unquote controversies was when the film The Fault in Our Stars was released, which is an adaptation of John Green's book, The Fault in Our Stars. And it's a story of two young uh, teenage cancer patients and their romance. And at one point in both book and film, they visit the Anne Frank house in Amsterdam. And for the film, they actually created an entire recreation because they weren't allowed to film the actual secret annex. And it's a point where the two characters kiss for the first time. And of course, when the film was released, people were scandalized. They're kissing in the Anne Frank house. It was the equivalent of, you're making out during Seinfeld. That was hysterical. Because first of all, we know that Anne Frank wrote about sexuality and her burgeoning sexuality. And the, there's, the story of the editing is so complicated because she herself also edited the book, hoping to have it published. And there's several different manuscripts to look at. But when I visited the Anne Frank house myself as an adult, what struck me the most were actually the famous pictures of the movie stars on the wall of her bedroom. And so this was someone who partook in admiring bodies and thinking about bodies. And of course, sexuality in America is always the sort of great bugaboo of people's fear. So it's not scandalous to me at all that people were kissing in the Anne Frank house. But I think that what happened with Mouse is very similar. But I think also Anne Frank is the more popular text than either Knight or Mouse because it's seen as safe. Because it doesn't take us to the real horror of Anne Frank, to everything that happens after her family is captured. It doesn't take us to her death. And that's the reason that book is so popular in Holocaust education. There's been some fascinating commentary over the last few weeks as well. I saw someone on social media use the term pajamification of Holocaust literature. And he was arguing that when books like Mouse are banned, they get replaced with things like The Diary of Anne Frank, but also The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, both of which are safe, as Jody said, in, in different ways. Anne Frank is safe because it does end before the camps. And The Boy in the Striped Pajamas is about a, a young German boy protagonist. It's the Holocaust, but it's not. It leaves out the reality that Mouse will not let you gloss over or ignore. And so that I think that needs to stay part of the conversation is not just, are we getting rid of certain titles? But what are we replacing them with? And what are those replacements saying about what we value and what agenda we're trying to put forward in the way that we're structuring this story? And that's deeply connected with what scholars call the de-Judoification of the Holocaust, right? Is that the idea that we're focusing on a German protagonist or look at number our stars. So many of the most popular books in Holocaust education focus on the experience of the non-Jew. Or when the Anne Frank was first adapted for Broadway, they took out a lot of the Jewish references. And I think that's doubly ironic in a culture where... Uh, 
during the COVID-19 pandemic, non-Jews are taking on the identification of Jews, seeing themselves as the persecuted group, in my opinion, offensive ways. So there's a deep irony going on. I think that there's a real danger in being not only willfully blind to the reality of our times, what kids experience, what they're subjected to, what they read, what they see, what they know, but also, I think, to be willfully blind to history and historical reality. And this gets to the question that, Jason, you raised and Jenny, you referred to and Jody, you referred to in terms of the intergenerational transmission of trauma and history. How do we talk about the Holocaust now in the 21st century at a time when we'll see the end of direct survivor testimony, that we'll see an end, in fact, to survivors, eyewitnesses? What does it mean now to witness? What does it mean to give testimony? And I think it's really interesting to think about this in terms of Mouse, because since Mouse, There's so many graphic artists and cartoonists who have written graphic narratives of one sort or another and attribute their ability to do so to Mouse. I'm thinking in terms of this intergenerational move, a graphic novelist such as Miriam Caton, cartoonist, who's a child survivor. She and her mother survived, the father survived too, but it's a narrative We're on Our Own, which is a fabulous graphic memoir. It's about their survival in Hungary after the German occupation of Budapest, and they hid in the countryside. And Miriam Caton said that Art Spiegelman's mouse gave her permission to tell the story of her own experience and her mother's experience in this form. So you've got someone like Miriam Caton who's a child survivor writing a graphic narrative. Then you have Art Spiegelman as the child of a survivor, but also Amy Kurzweil, who's a third-generation graphic novelist, who is the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, who has written a graphic memoir titled Flying Couch. She said, I count myself among the community of people whose lives were changed by mouse and whose work continues to be validated by it. That I also wrote a graphic novel about the Holocaust is not such a coincidence. Mouse galvanized a generation of comics creators to fill bookshelves with graphic narratives about the Holocaust and its inheritance, and inspired a community of thinkers to engage analytically with these stories. So you've got this kind of generational unfolding. And I I think that through the form, this innovative form, it speaks to our culture right now, which is a very visual culture. It's a way of bringing in increasing readers, numbers of readers, to notions of witnessing and what it means to see and to experience the history of the Holocaust. I think one of the key issues we're talking about here is Holocaust education. How is it that we transmit the knowledge and the understanding, which is in many ways just as important as the knowledge, not just to know what happened, but to try to understand what it is that took place? How is it that we transmit that to a new generation? We do this, the three of us at the college level, but it's also 
a much broader activity as a whole. And I think that a book like Mouse is both an important tool in terms of understanding the Holocaust itself. It's also an important tool in this process of transmission. And thank you, Vicky, for you know bringing this up. What else is interesting about that is the whole question of testimony, because what these writers do, and I'm thinking not only of, say, Kurzweil, Spiegelman, Caton, but also someone like the Canadian graphic novelist, I Was a Child of Holocaust Survivors, written by Bernice Eisenstein, or the second-generation American writer Martin Lemmelman, Mendel's daughter. What all these writers do is they allow the witness, they allow the actual survivor to give voice through transcribed testimonies, oral histories. Spiegelman uses the conceit of the tape recorder and writing down notes that his father says, but the words are put in the survivor's mouth. And I think that's very important because now when entering a time when there will no longer be survivors to talk to, their voice needs to be continued. And I think that's what these writers and graphic novelists are doing. I think one of the other important elements of this whole bearing witness testimony element is that graphic novels, they help to preserve as much of the fullness of the human experience as possible. And I was thinking about this when we were talking about the editing of The Diary of Anne Frank. This is a criticism that Mouse faced in its initial publication. It's a criticism that Philip Roth faced. This idea of depicting Jews, but in particular Holocaust survivors, in a negative way. There's a lot that's not likable about Spiegelman's father in the narrative. He's racist and he's mean and and he's cheap. And Spiegelman faced a lot of criticism for that depiction of his father. And Spiegelman's response was that we can't just valorize the survivors of the Holocaust and make it seem as though they were all angels, because that implies that only the best people deserved to survive. And the truth is that nobody deserved the Holocaust in any form. And there were wonderful people who died and there were bad people who survived. And his father was just in between. He was a normal person. And I think that's such an important part of this is that we need to preserve these stories that show warts and all who people are and what their experiences were. We need to get away from the kind of sanitized, valorized narrative that some of these other more packaged Holocaust narratives are and the edited version of Anne Frank's diary, which was, you know, taking out some of the more human frailty kind of things. That's such an important part of Mouse is that Spiegelman really stood his ground on saying, this is who my father is. This is my experience of who my father is. And I'm not going to leave out the parts where he's mean or racist or tries to return a half-eaten box of cereal to the grocery store just because it makes people feel uncomfortable to think bad thoughts about a Holocaust survivor. It gets us out of the redemptive understanding of the Holocaust. People love Schindler's List because it's about redemption and survival. People quote the Anne Frank quote about how people are good at heart and ignore the rest of the passage, which is about darkness and fear in humanity. And so Spiegelman doesn't do that. His father is there warts and all. We see the aftermath with his mother's suicide. We see a hanging, right? For me, one of the most haunting images in Mouse is his father seeing um, 
seen three Jews who were hanged. And that gets us into discussions in the American context where we can not compare in a, a flat way, but talk about lynching as well. And so I think that this question of what will we do when there are no survivors left to testify personally is a really fraught one, especially because of what both Vicky and Jenny have said about criticisms about the Holocaust. The Holocaust is mediated. And I have a little bit of a concern that because people don't understand that everything is mediated, accounts that take on different forms can be seen with suspicion sometimes. And so I'm thinking about how do you compare teaching mouse to say teaching some of the videos from the Yale collection, the Spielberg funded collection of all of those video testimonies, because we have a sense that video is immediacy. And that's such an important project, obviously. It's so very important that we have video testimonies of scholars and of survivors and audio testimonies. But we also have to think about what hits people most emotionally when they read it. And Mouse has a real effect on people's affect and emotion when it's taught. Yeah, I want to talk about video testimonies for a second. Jody, you mentioned, I think you were referring to the Shoah Foundation when you talk about Spielberg. Yeah. But there's also the collection at Yale, the Fortunoff collection. There are multiple collections of these video testimonies, also beyond those two, which are just the most well-known ones. But I think that you pointed out something here, which is the way in which a lot of people do not recognize that everything is mediated, especially when it comes to our interaction with the past. So even when we talk about an eyewitness to the Holocaust who tells their story, right, whether that's in person, speaking to a school, let's say, or you watch a video or something which is recorded, that in and of itself, even though it's an eyewitness, is a mediated understanding of the Holocaust because you're not seeing it for yourself, the actual events of the Holocaust, you're hearing about it through the other person. And so in a certain sense, one of the potential critiques of Holocaust testimonies at large is that we think about it as being a direct telling of the Holocaust, but it, it's still mediated, just like everything else, first of all. And then it also plays into the way in which many people, especially young people, do not completely understand the way that video itself is mediated. One of the key things that we can talk about is the way in which people learn about things through YouTube, for instance, or video online in general. But children are, are deeply impacted by videos. So they see something in a video. It's very visible. Obviously, it's right in front of them. It's in, in color or even just like movies. I talk about this with my students sometimes when we discuss historical memory, the way that most people have a sense of history that is more visceral from watching a fictional depiction of history because it's in vibrant color, the special effects. You get something more from that in a sense than from reading a history book in terms of popular historical memory. But the whole point of just what I'm trying to say here is that the video testimony is, of course, a very important historical document to preserve, but it potentially leads us into a trap, which is that people come to see those videos as a unmediated telling of the past because it's a video. And we can see the ways in which collections, so to speak, archives like YouTube, provide people with access to videos that they then see as being authoritative, even though they are wrong. I'm talking about YouTube, for instance, which is a great source of misinformation, particularly about history and about things like anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. And there's a lot to be said here about the, the algorithm of extremism which takes place in terms of presenting information through the, the recommendation, what should you watch next, which leads people down rabbit holes 
in general, which is what the algorithm is designed to do to keep you on the website, but which increasingly gives people access to extreme information or misinformation. So there's a lot to say here about the intermediation of all information and of all knowledge, especially about the past, about what video does to Holocaust memory, and about the way that children experience information and the way in which they will take a video, perhaps more at face value than an adult would. But a lot of adults take things they see in a video and assume that it's true also because it's on TV or because somebody made the video. Sorry, I didn't mean to go into a whole kind of diatribe about YouTube in particular, but when we think about Holocaust denialism, when we think about misinformation in general, the internet is a huge like issue here in many ways. It's a technology that's supposed to be a technology of information, but it's actually of misinformation. And I think that, Jody, you bring up a really interesting and important point here about how is it that people experience an event like the Holocaust in an intermediated way, right? As we do with all historical events that we couldn't view with our own eyes because we weren't alive. Like none of us out of the four of us were alive in, in that time. And this will continue as we go forward. So part of the question is, how do we teach something like the Holocaust? How do we transmit an understanding of that? As Vicky and all of you mentioned, we're entering a moment where that supposedly unmediated experience of talking to a survivor is no longer going to be possible. And things like literature, Mouse, a Diary of Anne Frank, and so on, are such important tools in this process as well. What's important here is conversation. Talking about the information and learning how to judge the information that we receive. And one thing for sure that banning books does is to shut down conversation. And I think that's dangerous with children. So much of this too, it becomes questions about what memory is and how we think about memory as history. First of all, those Holocaust testimonials are amazing, but they're also recorded 50 plus years after the event. So you have not only the things that can have gone wrong in memory over that time, but the fact that people have had 50 years of reading other things and and hearing other parts of it that are going to impact their own memory. And, and that's part of, I think, what's interesting about some of these Holocaust graphic novels as well. I'm glad that Vicky brought up We Are On Our Own, which I always think of being as a 1.5 generation memory because it's the story of her survival, but she was two and a half years old when the story starts. She acknowledges that she doesn't actually remember most of what she's telling, even though it is her life, but she's getting those memories from her mother. And so one of the things that I think the Holocaust graphic novels especially do is they remind us that memory is an incredibly important resource in understanding the past, but it's not a perfect bit of history frozen in amber. It is something that is affective. It is something that is psychological. It's something that it has so much to do with an individual person and the way that they felt about certain experiences. And so it keeps the immediacy of the events, but it also maybe stops us from that feeling that you're talking about, Jason, that what I'm seeing is true history. It forces us to wrestle with the fact that these are all mediated, imperfect, affective memories. And graphic novels, through the nature of their artifice, can draw attention to the fact that memory is fragmented, right? 
when you think about like a classic, like McLeod's understanding comics, right? Things like the gutter between two boxes, things like how you choose to go back and forth between styles of drawing as Spiegelman does. All of those things bring our attention to mediation and to the fragmentation of memory in a way that film can do. But so often Holocaust films are done in a very realist mode. Setting aside Life is Beautiful, which is a whole other can of worms. And so I think that's powerful too. I don't know what to say about YouTube, except that it's very much on my mind as a scholar and as a parent of a a 10-year-old Jewish child who found some Holocaust videos on YouTube and didn't tell me about it until about a week or two later. And so I, I think that certainly there's misinformation on YouTube. There's different styles of video, but I don't think we can ignore it because it is such a primary source of information, especially as we move down the generations. I want to talk more about this issue of how children learn about the Holocaust. Jordi, what you just mentioned about what our kids are exposed to, right? What children are viewing and watching. This is part of a broader set of anxieties that exist in American culture, perhaps broadly as well, beyond that, and which also stands at the heart of this whole controversy that took place in Tennessee, right? Which is, what are our children being exposed to in school? Which it's not just about the Holocaust here in in that particular story, and it's a bigger story about what's happening in America right now in general. There's a, a very large set of controversies around what is being termed critical race theory, which I'm, I'm phrasing it that way because the way that people are talking about critical race theory in the public sphere is not what scholars of critical race theory are actually doing in terms of legal studies and other kinds of disciplines where that term is being used in a scholarly and systematic way. There's a distinction between what's happening in the public sphere about this brouhaha about critical race theory and the actual reality of scholarship. But the point of what I'm just trying to say is that that this story in Tennessee is like part of a, a bigger set of events where you see certain groups of parents and politicians getting all in an uproar about things that they are afraid that their children are learning about uh, in school, which for the most part, they aren't being taught at all in the first place. But it's code for a wider cultural clash that's taking place. And there's a lot to say about that in particular. But I think that, Jody, what you just mentioned here, and I know you wanted to talk about this in particular, was this issue of how children learn about things like the Holocaust. And we've talked already so far about a number of the key texts that are used, you know, to teach kids about the Holocaust, whether that's the diary of Anne Frank, whether that's Ali Wiesel's Night or Mouse or any number of other texts. What is this issue at stake here in terms of how we teach kids about the Holocaust? And uh, and then also what kind of books and other kinds of media that we might use or might avoid using in this endeavor? So to back it up for one second, this whole idea of protecting children is actually a super recent idea right? The idea that it's scary to expose children to death, like it's a very privileged idea that children aren't exposed to death because they still are in many places all the time. And certainly if you're talking about any pre-modern moment, they saw death all the time. And it's also a question of privilege, right? People who don't want their kids to read Mouse or to learn about the horrors of slavery, they might be able to protect their children in part because it's farther from their children's identities. When I was researching my first book, which is about children's literature, one of the things that blew my mind was how many picture books there are about the Holocaust and how often the Holocaust shows up in books about Hanukkah, for example. And there was this story, it's a picture book called One Candle from quite a while ago, and it's about 
the story of a woman's survival in the camps and creating a candle out of a potato, right? So it's about that idea of how do we create something from almost nothing. And there are so many picture books about the Holocaust. A huge percentage of the Sydney Taylor Book Award winners in both the picture book category and the uh, young adult novel category have been about the Holocaust. And so I think we really need to think about who gets to protect their children from stories of bad things and whose children don't have a choice, whose children are exposed to the Holocaust at a much younger age because Hebrew schools, for example, cover it often quite young. So I don't have an answer about what's the good children's book, what's the bad children's book. I think the idea of protecting children doesn't make much sense. There was a recent Spiegelman discussion about the whole mouse controversy, and I found it interesting that he brought up Maurice Sendak. Maurice Sendak was like most American Jews. His parents got out before the Holocaust, right? Most Ashkenazi American Jews today are descended from people who got out either before 1924 or thereabouts. And so Sendak said, you can't lie to children. It's not something you can do. And he said, I do not, I'm not in the business of lying to children. And I think Spiegelman was picking up on something really important there. He didn't have a choice, right, as the child of Holocaust survivors about whether or not he knew this history, although how it happened was very fraught. That's one of the other things that's good about Mouse, right, is that it's actually not children's literature. It is written by an adult for adults, but because of the fact that it's such a multimedia experience to read and because the nature of a graphic novel is that they're not going to be text heavy a younger reader who would perhaps not be able to get as much from a 300 page history of the holocaust can read a 300 page graphic novel about the Holocaust, even though it's not pitched for them. And there are going to be elements of that that children are not going to pick up on the same way that an adult will. And there will be details, historical details and geographical details that that the younger a kid is, the the less they're really registering. But it's actually, it's a really great text that can allow children to get much more out of an adult story than they perhaps otherwise could. So it's a way of bringing younger readers into something that isn't written for them, but they can absolutely still engage with. And also the truth is that everyone's child will eventually go out into the world, will leave the protective, if in fact it is, confines of the home and have to navigate that world. And we want to give our kids as much information, not only as much information as is necessary to do that, but the ability to judge and to navigate that information. I was thinking about, you know, as you were talking about this question of appropriateness, it also raises the larger question of the appropriateness of the genre itself. You know, at least in its early stages, the question of a graphic novel, which many people refer to still as a comic book, which of course is the wrong term, but is a comic book an appropriate medium to represent atrocity? Might the cartoon form the very genre itself and the expectations that people bring to cartoons inevitably trivialize the subject or allow people to think that it's fictional 
because it's in a comic form? Does the form itself distract from the subject? And I think all these are really interesting questions. Do the limitations of the form, the conventions of the form itself, it's an elliptical form, it's a minimalizing form, does that affect the expression of atrocity? And I think not. I think, on the contrary, that they contribute to understanding issues of atrocity and trauma and memory, especially with the intersection that we see in the graphic narrative between time and space and different temporalities and different geographies overlapping, different voices. It's one thing um, to say here also is that if we want to historicize Mouse, right, and think about the time period when it was produced, the the first volume in 1986, the second one in 1991, this is at the same moment that you see this debate taking place among scholars of what we would call the limits of representation. What are the limits of the ways in which we discuss and describe the Holocaust? You know, Vicky, you mentioned, you know, can you write about the Holocaust in a comic book, so to speak? That is part of that debate. To go back to what Jenny mentioned a moment ago as well, part of what makes Mouse uh, such an interesting book, especially to teach with, is because it is written for adults and the topic is a topic for adults, but it does so in the visual language that children will understand. And this is both in the sense that it's a visual novel. Also, think about the issue of the depiction of the various uh, groups of Jews and Germans and French and so on and so forth as different animals, right? This is such an effective model of trying to demonstrate the the way I talk about it with my students oftentimes when I when I taught this text is both about the certain dynamics of the animals as they relate to each other, right? The the cats chasing the mice, but also about the fact that that the Nazis themselves viewed people as uh, like essentially animals and certainly described Jews as vermin. That was part of the Nazi anti-Semitic rhetoric and virulent anti-Semitism. So like it's a way to convey to readers in a very powerful way that you don't have to give it a lot of analysis to understand the dynamics of these groups in the Holocaust. You just see the animals that are being depicted. But this is also the language of children's media. Like how many children's TV shows have animal characters in general? And and so what you see here is this kind of intersection of an adult topic of the Holocaust, right, with the visual language that children will immediately comprehend. And that's both very interesting, also very powerful. And that's part of what makes Mouse such a phenomenal book to begin with, but also such a powerful book to teach with, both at the college level and before as well. And kids can get that stuff. I, I feel like you can draw a direct line from Mouse's visual allegory and, and animal allegories to Zootopia as an animal allegory for racial profiling and, and police violence. Yes, these are levels of interpretation that are necessary to get everything out of the story, but kids are smart about stuff and they pick up on it. So it's a great way of helping children realize that they are critical readers and that they have these skills to unlock the hidden levels of meaning in a text. Also, what is more basic than storytelling? Storytelling is at the heart of our culture, of all cultures, before there was anything in print. And what a work like Mouse does and subsequent graphic novels is to tell the story in a way that's accessible, a way that's performative, a way that draws in the reader. It's a conversation. 
I absolutely love the line from Mouse to Zootopia. I want to discuss that more. But also these categories, we're scholars, so it's our job to say categories or constructs. But in particular, when we talk about the difference between children's literature, adult literature, it's a really messy line. And it's a contemporary line that comes with the development of the youth market, right? Like after World War II. And Sendak didn't want to write for children. He just wanted to write and draw. But I also think it's important to include children in these conversations at a young age. Otherwise, they grow up and they get to college and they can't tell you, you know, anything about, say, the history of Native Americans in the United States. They've just heard a pilgrim story. And so I think that Mouse is a tool for that, but so are many other books. And I would recommend one book, which is Sendak and Tony Kushner's Brundabar, which I think is one of the most haunting picture books that does relate to the Holocaust allegorically in a really beautiful and, and terrifying way and comes out of a story from Theresienstadt, from an opera that was written by a Jew and performed by Jews, including Jewish children at Theresienstadt. So there's a lot of visual and written media together that can tell these stories in really complicated ways that work at many levels for many ages. I would add, isn't the name of the book that Sendak also wrote, Miri? It's an allegory about the Holocaust as well. It's even more allegorical than Brundabar, but I would recommend that as well. One of the ways to think about this, to go back to Jody's comment a few minutes back, about that the idea that quote-unquote protecting children is both a recent phenomenon and also highly privileged and problematic in some ways, right? Because eventually kids are going to grow up and they're going to need the tools to understand the world around them. Look, I can understand I'm a parent. You want to protect your children. This is both about physical protection, but also just protecting them from from the fact that we live in a scary world. In many ways, like the COVID uh, crisis of the past couple of years, there's no way to protect your children, right, from the reality of the fact that they can no longer play with their friends. But it's the same phenomenon of wanting to protect your children as much as possible from getting sick. So anyway, like I think it's, it's very interesting that here we are in early 2022 when the impulse to protect your children, right, is so powerful. It always is, right, as a parental impulse, but it manifests itself in so many components of our lives today. And when we think about something like the Holocaust, and this is both a pedagogical question, at what age is it best to introduce this history and these ideas and in what way to children? It's also uh, like a question of to what extent can children be shielded from these things in the first place? If you are a child of Holocaust survivors, this is, of course, a generation ago, right? You're growing up, let's say, in the 1950s and 60s. You, in a certain sense, can't avoid the Holocaust because your parents are right there or your grandparents or even just the fact somebody today who's a child would be a descendant of Holocaust survivors, though it may not be as in your face as if your parents are right there living, obviously, in your house. But the point is to get to something that Jody said a little while back, is that this is an incredibly complicated issue, but this is heightened by the moment in which we are living where people are very afraid uh, in general and, and kind of like feeling a need to be very protective of their children on a number of different fronts. So I guess, especially as I'm thinking that that you know, I would love to speak at length about all of these issues, we just don't have infinite time. Um, like, what is the issue about mouse, right? What does this tell us about the broader 
cultural developments of 2021 and 2022 in the context of the pandemic, in the context of contemporary American utilization of the Holocaust in various components of society and popular culture. I can think, for instance, about the Holocaust comparisons which are taking place with regards to COVID-related issues. What do you guys think here? How is it that the mouse controversy, how does it help us to understand the broader moment in which we're living? I think in part, it tells us that the Holocaust, and here I want you to picture it with two giant capital letters, like all caps, the Holocaust, still has a really profound narrative hold on the American imagination. Whether it's people banning or defending mouse, or whether it's like neo-Nazis standing by the side of the road in Orlando, or people who don't want to be vaccinated comparing themselves to Holocaust victims, that exists in part because Americans were the good guys in the Holocaust. I'm not sure what that does with the neo-Nazi example, but Americans want to see themselves as the good guys. And part of why the Holocaust is so important to Americans is because it didn't happen here. We see a lot of the anxieties around talking about slavery or Native American genocide really polarizing Americans. But when it comes to the Holocaust, it's safer for some Americans to talk about the Holocaust than it is for them to talk about while America was obviously involved in World War II or could have done more in World War II. It has this capturing hold on our imagination, I think, in part because it's not immediately on the soil. Right around the same time that this Tennessee school board ban happened, Whoopi Goldberg got herself in trouble for saying that the Holocaust was white on white crime. I think you're exactly right. It's a thing that didn't happen here. It's not our fault, quote unquote. And it's something that can be bracketed as a different kind of atrocity than a lot of the racially based atrocities that we are trying to keep in the conversation in the United States and stop people from forgetting that this sort of stuff is going on, the Holocaust feels like a safer alternative to that. I think there's a danger in this, but I think that the Holocaust has become a kind of universalizing term. It's used in that way as to represent what some people refer to as the post-apocalyptic world we live in now, certainly a post-9-11 world that we live in in the United States. I think there are problems with all of this. Part of what I'm just thinking about here is the relationship between the, the banning of Mao's and the attempt to ban the teaching of critical race theory. As you guys have laid out, the Holocaust is often seen as a safer subject to teach. Right, you look at like the way that that the Holocaust is represented at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C., and it's very much about the narrative that America is a liberator and welcoming Holocaust survivors as immigrants, and so on and and so forth. The complexity of that, <laughs> exactly right. But the point is that when, when people teach and talk about the Holocaust, especially in say public schools, but beyond that as well. I think, as you guys were saying, it's a safer subject than, say, talking about slavery, talking about Native American genocide, because it's something that happened far away. It's something where Americans served as a liberator, as it were, of many of the camps. Though, of course, it was actually the Soviets who liberated the vast majority of the camps in Eastern Europe. But anyway, it's a very complicated subject. But you see the attempt to ban this discussion of mouse in this one place. 
but it's reflective of this broader phenomenon of trying to limit what is being taught in general about specifically these kinds of historical traumatic experiences that we can look to. Yeah, this is a a sort of creepy take on it, but the last five to 10 years at least have seen this rise in autocracy globally. And when you're studying the events of 1939 to 1945, you have to really, as one of my friends does, start in the 1920s. And so I wonder, not that this is a conspiracy theory, but because I think what happened in Tennessee really, to some extent, was people freaking out about nudity. But I think it was enabled by the fact that along with rising autocracy internationally, I usually see more limits on what people can and can't read. So I think it's also that historical context. So whether or not we're the good guys in the Holocaust, which of course is not that simple, I think that the increase in book banning, the freaking out about critical race theory is both part of that general international rise in autocracy and also American individualization. We're consumers. People want to control what their children are taught in a really American personalized way as well. I also think that critical race theory is being conflated in our culture right now because of what we've come to call very contemporary race wars. And because it's become such a fraught situation right now in terms of issues of inequity, police brutality, you name it, that the one thing becomes the other in the popular discourse. And we've seen that happen with many different issues over the decades. One final question that we might consider here is especially when we teach the Holocaust to a constituency of college students, I think that one of the things that we can see is both the widespread teaching of the Holocaust, that so many students come into our classes with sometimes a very deep knowledge of the events of the Holocaust, but also a disparity where there are sometimes students who don't know that much. And for me, teaching over the years at a couple different institutions, I've been struck by the fact that there are some states that mandate Holocaust education There are other states that don't mandate Holocaust education. And of course, when you look at what is taught in, say, high schools, there are so many subjects that are mandated and that need to be covered for, say, the exam. Almost everything gets short trift because they need to do a hundred different things in the course of a single school year. And so anyway, but the point here is that one of the questions that I think came up during the the recent mass controversy in which people are still talking about is what does this tell us about what people are learning about the Holocaust and about how people are understanding these events, uh, which are becoming further and further away from us historically, but which are still so relevant because we see people making Holocaust comparisons, sometimes correctly, sometimes incorrectly, or in a way that doesn't really equate. What are the ways in which the situation surrounding Mouse is part of this broader issue of, you know, how people learn about the Holocaust and about what it is that people have in terms of a Holocaust context and understanding to the extent that people are misusing the Holocaust, I would argue, in many ways in our contemporary moment. And this will only continue. So I think that part of the outcry about the banning of Mouse was like, how can you ban Mouse when people already don't understand the Holocaust in a deep way? I've been teaching literature of the Holocaust for 30 years. And I'm not a historian. I'm a you know, professor of, of Holocaust literary studies, I have to give much more historical background now than I did even 10 years ago. 10 years ago, 
pretty much I could assume that students who took a literature of the Holocaust class had basic knowledge who did what to whom, when and where. They had a basic knowledge of geography. They had a basic kind of timeline. I am not finding that now. I'm finding that I have to give a lot of upfront lectures just about basic history before we even get to the literature. I've taught in four different states at this point, New York, Connecticut, eight years in Wisconsin, and now several years in Pennsylvania. Some of those mandate Holocaust education, including Wisconsin. I'm not sure about Pennsylvania. I would say that my students come into the classroom in most of these places without a lot of historical context, as Vicki was saying. I think a lot of that has to do with a broader American minimization of history and social sciences and the humanities and K through 12 education. I don't blame the students. I tend to blame standardized tests. But I think part of why the discussion of Mouse was so fraught is that you have such a small approved canon of Holocaust books. We know that there are actually like hundreds of them, but because there are just a few go-tos when time and space for the discussion of history and philosophy and everything else is so limited, then losing another one becomes even more fraught and difficult. It's just everything that we talked about throughout this conversation about the loss of the witness generation, the loss of the survivor generation, the Holocaust is transitioning to being one of those things that happened in history that students at best know is a thing that happened and don't know any of the subsequent or surrounding details. It's like any other historical event that that they are aware it was a thing. They may be aware where it happened, but beyond that. What happens when the Holocaust becomes remote history and inaccessible history? What happens when those voices are gone? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to talk about, and I think that we could have gone on for another hour and a half. But I want to thank all of you, Jenny, Jody, and, and Vicky, for joining me to talk about these important and pressing issues, which are, I think, going to continue to change and develop over the coming weeks, months, and also years. And thank you guys so much. Thank you, Jason. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thanks so much to you for listening to this episode. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.